When we walked into the supermarkets and all of a sudden we're like, oh my goodness, there's no more toilet paper. The supply chain roared to the front where people were like, well, why isn't there any more toilet paper? It wasn't made to handle this kind of spike in demand. All of a sudden, you know, I love her to death. She's my mom, but I use my mom as an example. All of a sudden my mom recognized, oh, that's what you do. That's what supply chains are about. And I was like, yeah, that's that's what supply chains do. Mom, they, they <laughs> make sure you have stuff on the shelf. I'm Adam Polka. And I'm Bill Denby. Together, we'll be talking to supply chain experts from around the world who are tackling challenges in their corner of the industry. We believe that people are the changemakers that drive innovation. That's why this supply chain podcast is about learning from those who lead by example. We hope that the conversations you hear will inspire you to drive change within your own organization. This is the Great Supply Chain Podcast. Let's jump in. You probably know Guy Courtin as a speaker, a writer, an analyst. He's a veteran retail supply chain expert with decades of experience in the retail and supply chain space. Currently serving as vice president and industry principal for retail at Texas, he has held leadership roles at Six River Systems, a Shopify company, Infor Retail, and i2 Technologies, now Blue Yonder. He has also served as industry analyst at Constellation Research, SCM World, now Gardner, and Forrester Research. Guy holds an MBA in management from the Olin Graduate School of Business, a master's in international relations from Loyola University in Chicago, and a bachelor's degree in political science from the College of the Holy Cross. Guy, welcome to the show. Welcome, Adam. How are you? Very good. You know, Guy, you've had an interesting background that stitches together both sides of the equation, both analyst and vendor side. How does that color your perspective when it comes to supply chain? I've certainly seen things from both sides of the table. And for me, it's really served great purpose from the standpoint of understanding from the vendor perspective, you know, what it is that we are trying to convey and how we're end of the day trying to sell to the end customer. But from the analyst perspective, having more of a holistic view of not only the vendor landscape, so how are users approaching it, right? I think there's sometimes a chasm, if you will, between the reality of what we as vendors believe users know about technology and the reality of what you know the, the the companies know themselves like for example you know i think we're all very well versed in the world of cloud technology and we sort of take it for granted that everybody understands what the cloud is but when i was still an analyst and even you know when i, when I came back to the vendor world a few years ago I still had a lot of conversations with users and prospects who still didn't understand what the cloud was and, and it was sort of a foreign concept to them you know, being grounded, having been on both sides of the table to seeing those issues and understanding, you know, we can't take for granted that people understand what cloud is or what supply chain is or what order management is or omni-channel is. We have to remember that for the most part, the people that we're talking to, they have full-time day jobs and technology is going to help them get that day job done, but technology is not their primary job. That's a great perspective, Gay. Welcome to the, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, I think that Perhaps the job of this podcast is to break some of those barriers down. I think that would be a really good thing to uh, to try and do in this conversation. So thank you very much. Happy to be here, Bill. Looking forward to it. So let's rewind a couple of years at least. What led you into the world of supply chain? Tell us sort of your, your origin story. You know, a couple of years, I think we have to go back 20 years, which is, is going to make me feel super old. Uh, but if I go back, you know, <laughs> sort of start, start when you talk about being at Forrester, and I was at Forrester. I think at a really interesting time, right? I, I was there, and again, I'm going to date myself. I was there last millennial. I was there in 1998 to 2001. So for those of you who, who remember those times- Y2K, baby. Don't, but I'll give you a quick crash. Y2K was one of the big ones. Absolutely, Bill. And that was really interesting. But also, the internet 
right? This, this internet thing that we take for granted today was just starting. Uh, and there's a really interesting sort of video about Dave Letterman and Bill Gates from 2000, where, you know, Bill Gates was still trying to explain to Letterman what this internet thing was about sending emails and things like that. But really, when I, when I look back to those days at Forrester, right, this, this internet thing was starting. I remember this cute little company from Seattle called Amazon would come in and talk to us and they were selling books and CDs. And it was really interesting, but it was sort of low risk. Like, well, if you lost your book in transit, it was really going to be that difficult or your CD got lost in the mail. Not that big a deal. But the reason I bring it up is that what, what it opened my eyes to is that we all of a sudden had this internet tool, which gave us access to the world, gave us access to customers across the world. And all of a sudden, we, we sort of ran to it and said, oh, my goodness, I can sell anything online. I can post anything online. I can put the pricing. I can communicate. All these great things we take for granted today. But all of a sudden, what we forgot was, if I sell you something, I have to get it to you. I have to fulfill that order. I have to move a physical good from point A to point B. The digital assets are easier, right? It's easy to post a website, easy to post a mobile site, easy to take your money across the internet. Now, all of a sudden, if I'm asking you to give me some money, hard-earned money for my product, I now have to get that product from you to you wherever you are in the world. And yes, there's postal services and FedExes and all that, but we realized very quickly that that part of the equation was something that needed a lot of work. And what happened was that sort of got me interested in this whole side of logistics and how you fulfill orders. You know, I ended up going to business school and then coming out of business school, one of my customers that's at during Forrester's time was i2 Technologies. And it just so happened after business school, uh, you know, they were looking, you know, looking to bring some people on their team. And, and you know, I, I, I jumped to the opportunity and, and that sort of launched my career in supply chain. I've been in it ever since. Uh, but I really look back to the, that dot-com days, grounding me in this, uh, this notion of there is a combination of the digital world and the physical world. And the physical world is the part that's still very hard to deal with. Why? Because it's the physical world. There's physical constraints. I can't move a TV set any faster than I can drive a truck down the road or, or physically move it or manufacture it. Uh, so that really sort of launched my interest in it. And, and, you know, I haven't looked back since. I think that's a great segue into the topic of today, which is convergence, because convergence of the physical and the digital, digital worlds of supply chain is happening now, but so is convergence of different types of vendors, uh, whether it's retailers, whether it's distributors, whether it's manufacturers, whether it's brands, they're all starting to look alike. They're all starting to have to do the same things. And they're all having to learn a complete new world. And I think that's a very interesting place to be right now. I know the, the early 2000s were interesting, but today we're seeing the rules rewritten when it comes to how retail has to work, how distribution has to work, how brands have to work. And I think I'm, I'm really curious to see hear what your take is on what is that world all about? What, what is changing around convergence these days? Yeah, Bill, you know, it's it's really interesting that there is this sort of this blended world. It, maybe it's not even blended anymore. Maybe the the world we knew 10, 15, 20 years ago has gone, right? This this world of of segments between uh co consumer packaged good companies and the retail channel, the wholesale movement of items, uh sort of the linearity, if you will, of supply chains. You're absolutely right. I think it's absolutely disappeared for lack of a better term, right? You just look at some of the realities of today's world, right? What's a retailer, right? Is Costco a retailer? Yes, they move products for P&G and, and Unilever and other folks like that, right? Big consumer packaged goods companies. But oh, by the way, they have their own Kirkland brand, right? And that makes up, I think, about a third of their revenues is in their own private label. 
Um, you look at, you know, our friends, Amazon, right? And I was doing some research on this, but I think it's really interesting. If you look at the number of private labels they have, by late last account, they have almost over 130 private labels, you know, Amazon. Some are obviously there's Amazon basics we all know about, but then there's a whole host of other ones, which you wouldn't know it's an Amazon private label unless you did the research. And of those, it's predicted that it's going to be about $25 billion worth of their revenue by 2022. $25 billion worth of revenue for an Amazon. So is Amazon a retailer? Are they a manufacturer? Um, is Costco a retailer? Are they a manufacturer? And then the flip side to this is I'm sure a lot of us have seen, but you know, famously Nike a few months ago basically said, hey, speaking of Amazon, we're going to we're going to bypass that channel. We're no longer going to use Amazon as a retail distribution channel. We're going to continue to push our DTC, our direct-to-consumer portfolio. Uh, you're seeing that with Adidas, with Under Armour and other brands from that standpoint. So what are they doing? Are they a, are they a consumer brand or are they a retailer? Right. That that convergence aspect, Bill, as you mentioned, has has taken hold. Where again, you know, we as consumers, in a way, I don't want to say we don't care, but we as consumers, we expect our relationship with the brands, with retailers, to be the same regardless. So now it's up to them to meet our expectations. And I think that's why you're seeing this convergence because. A, retailers realize they can't be beholden to a couple of large companies that are pushing inventory through their channels because once that dries up, they're left with nothing. So they need to create their own private label. You're seeing the direct-to-consumer brands realizing, wait a minute, with digital, I can go direct-to-consumer. Why am I going to rely upon a Foot Locker or a Target or an Amazon to push my wares when I can build that relationship and I can fulfill with my end customer. And oh, by the way, the key to all this is I then control that relationship. I control the data. I control a whole host of things, which before I had to give up to the retailer. So I think that's why we're seeing this, this world of convergence. I think it's, it's really exciting from a consumer standpoint. I think it's a massive cha- challenge for both retailers and the brands. Um, one of the things that uh, we're hearing is a massive explosion of this uh, convergence process during the pandemic and, you know, with the growth of everything and people getting online. And, and we're not just talking about the, uh, the the Nikes and the Adidas. We're talking about, uh, you know, uh, shaving products and, and the most mundane things that you would normally buy at Costco. And the question I've heard a number of times is, do you think this is going to continue? Do you think that this trend is going to continue and get bigger? Or do you think there will be a readjustment back into, uh, sure, there are certain uh, brands that you 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 recognize and you would buy, but not everything. I'm not going to buy my porridge oats from direct from uh, Nestle, and I'm not going to buy my, you know, and so on and so forth. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think, Bill, like everything, right? I think there's a lot of conversation about sort of going to the extremes, right? It's like, oh my goodness, like COVID hit. We're going to buy everything online now. Like the stores are completely dead. We're just going to sit at home and have everything delivered to us by drones or autonomous vehicles. And that's going to be the reality. But like everything, right? There's the gray area, right? There's the middle. I I think the mentality that COVID has created is one by which those of us who are sort of hesitant to buy online, pick up in store, buy online, have delivered, by necessity had to do that. And all of a sudden we realized 
hey, you know what? If I order my groceries, they'd show up within a reasonable time. Yeah, you know, sometimes I ordered uh, skim milk and they gave me 2% milk. Sometimes I ordered, you know, brie cheese and they gave me, you know, camembert, what have you. But at the end, it was convenient. It was safe because it was contactless, contact-free shopping. Um, it came to me at a reasonable time. So you know what? I might do more of it. Same time, I think what we're going to see is is people are, are also recognizing that you know what? I've been stuck at home for 12 months. Like, get, let me get out and get back out into the real world. So I think what we're going to see is, is sort of a, a continuation, if you will, of people as consumers demanding more from the brands, from the retailers and all this. What we're going to see from the brands and retailers is they're going to have to meet those expectations. So we're going to have, again, that gray area. I think we're still going to see the value of traditional, air quotes, retail why? Because I think they're going to push more and more into the experiential side. Funny you mentioned the sort of bland stuff like shaving products and all that. But I would argue, like, look at companies like The Art of Shaving that have created this experience to come in to buy razors and shaving kits and all that. You know, I remember seeing one of their stores in Las Vegas and it's, it's like an old fashioned barbershop, right? So you come in and they've got the, the little pole with the colors on it and the big barber chairs and the nice big sinks where they're going to do the hot towel treatments. And all this for what? To buy razors and shaving cream, right? Um, you know, I could just go to CVS and pull the Gillette off the shelf and buy it. But you no, know, there's a whole experience behind it. So it drives me into the store. So you're going to see that where, where, you know, the convergence, yes, is happening, but also the convergence from creating more reason to go into stores, so experiences, the ease of use so that that delivery to home, Bopac, Bopis, all those are going to continue to be part of the portfolio. But I think it's certainly going to have to be for both retail and consumer brands, DTC companies. It has to be a blend. It can't be one or the other, right? It can't be the extremes. And I think what COVID has shown us is that, yes, the ease of use, the ability to order online, the ability to have home delivery, the ability to have contact-free type transactions is going to continue. But it cannot or should not be an extreme. What I mean by that, it's not going to be all in one bucket or the other. So I think for, for retailers and brands out there, they have to have this strategy around what's the right mix for my customer and then how do I execute on it? And so how does that translate into uh, the backend supply chain operations? Are existing paradigms going to work or do we have to evolve them? I mean, I know this is a bit of a leading question, but, but ultimately I'm curious to understand if we're focused on customer experience and we're focused on brand and we understand that that blend is going to be there, how do we evolve the backend processes to support that? You know, Adam, that's, that's the, the million-dollar question. Uh, I think the reality is, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, what I learned during those dot-com days is that we, we kind of forgot or we ignored the backend or we didn't give it as much love as it deserved. That is still the case where I think there's still a gap between what it is we can do with the front end, so to speak, and promise and what the backend has to do to, ke- to meet those promises. And I think it's only going to continue to grow in terms of the challenges. I think what we're going to see, however, is that for the most part, and maybe I don't want to say this is my naivete, but maybe it's my hope, and I know hope is not a strategy, but it is my hope that most of us, most of our brands, most of our retailers have recognized the importance and the vitality of that back end to their ability to meet their customers' needs. What COVID has definitely showed or during the pandemic is when we walked into supermarkets and grocery stores and all of a sudden we we're like, oh my goodness, there's no more toilet paper or there's no more milk, you know, all of a sudden this, this back end, the supply chain, 
you know, roar to the front where people were like, well, why isn't there any more toilet paper? It wasn't made to handle this kind of spike in demand or this kind of breakage in the supply chain. All of a sudden, you know, I love her to death. She's my mom, but I use my mom as an example. All of a sudden, my mom recognized, oh, that's what you do. That's what supply chains are about. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what supply chains do. Mom, they, they <laughs> make sure you have stuff on the shelf. So I think what, to your point, Adam, I think what, what we're going to see is the back end, the supply chains that support all these processes are going to be taxed even more. The companies, the retailers, the direct-to-consumer brands, the consumer packaged goods, those companies that are going to be able to meet this new paradigm, is going to meet whatever the new normal is, and I hate that term, but whatever the new normal is, I think you're going to find the reason for their success is because A, they're being flexible in their thinking, but B, they have the back end that can support whatever they come up with in terms of fulfillment or new customer models. They're going to have the flexibility and the insight to say, hey, we're going to have to pivot and do X, Y, or Z to meet this demand. For example, right? what happens, um, I heard this really interesting interview with the CEO of Lowe's uh, through NRF. It was sometime you know, right in the middle of the pandemic. And he had this really interesting story where he said, hey, you know, end of 2019, BOPAC, so buy online, pick up at curb, was on their roadmap, not a high priority, but something they were going to get to in 2020. All of a sudden, the pandemic hits. And all of a sudden, that priority got moved up to the front of the queue. And he said within weeks, they're able to get all their Lowe's stores to be able to handle BOPAC. Right now, we sort of take that for granted. Like, oh, yeah, of course I could buy online, pull up in my car, and someone comes out and puts the stuff in my car. That's easy. The reality is that back-end fulfillment system, that back-end data system, that back-end organizational system, it's a lot more complicated. It's not as easy as it sounds, right? There's a lot of, of you know, you talk about jazz. There's a lot about harmonization between all the instruments on in that quartet or what have you to get that stuff out there. So what does that demonstrate? The Lowe's system or the Lowe's backend, both the people, the systems, the technology were nimble enough to meet this new reality and to get this way of fulfilling up and running very quickly. That's where you're going to see the success. And I think that's what we're going to see more and more of as we move into, again, this new normal post-COVID is that these fulfillment backends are going to have to be flexible enough and nimble enough to match whatever creativity we come up with in the front end. So th- what we're talking about here is, is um, being nimble enough to differentiate, to identify yourself as someone who listens to your customers and offer a differentiated experience. That goes along with personalization to the customer, but personalization at a scale we've never seen before, where every customer's gets a personalized experience. How does a retailer start building a philosophy inside their own organization that they should be able to offer personalized relationships with every single customer? That seems like a very uh, significant change to the way things used to be in retail. Yeah, 100%, Bill. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think one of, the, one of the trends that I've certainly seen with the, the rise of digitization is absolutely the personalization. And the challenge becomes personalization means, you know, different things to everybody, right? Adam's notion of personalization might be, um, you know, he wants uh, a certain shampoo that has 20% aloe and 15% ginseng and comes in a, you know, gray blue bottle, right? Bill might want personalization is that that shampoo gets to him every three days at 2.15 in the afternoon. And Guy's idea of personalization is, you know, I want my picture on the side of the bottle, right? So personalization takes different forms. And I think the challenge to some degree, Bill, for retailers and brands 
is to avoid falling to the trap, and this is delicate, but avoid falling to the trap where we got to personalize to the degree of one. What I mean by that is that every single person is going to have their specific personalization. The reality is, in my opinion, is that that's going to be incredibly difficult to match for everything. So you're going to have different variations of personalization. For example, fulfillment. Fulfillment absolutely is part of an experience. It can be or should be part of a personalization journey. So as I mentioned, maybe for me, or as mentioned the example for you, Bill, like the example might be your personalization is you just want replen of that shampoo done every other week. Well, that's a personalized service, right? That meets what you're looking for. Um, That is something maybe as a retailer or a brand, I can start figuring out with my system, can I deliver that? Can I make it almost appear as this bespoke to you? But in reality, I'm able to fulfill every other week to you because guess what? I have a, you know, I know I'm doing a milk run in your neighborhood every other week and I can just put you on that list to deliver that, that one thing of shampoo. Adam's personalization is the different ingredients that go into it. Maybe what I do there is I realize, hey, because I do my data analysis, I realize that, you know, Adam's actually part of a larger cohort that want that same type of mixture. So you know what? That's okay. I'll make it appear to Adam that it's being personalized specifically to his needs. But in reality, because I'm smart and I've done my analysis and I've done my segmentation and all this, I've put him in a category with another. Now, it's it's not a massive category like saying, oh, it's you know someone between 18 and 25. It's a more specific category, but it provides that notion of personalization to that end person. So I think that there's, this sounds wrong, but there are tricks, if you will, to make personalization happen without being true one-to-one personalization. Right, but you gave the example of your face on the side of the bottle. And you can go online and order. (laughs) No, no, you can go online and order a pair of sneakers with your initials on them. You can go online and you can order a scarf, which is pre-embroidered with whatever you want on it. And that level of personalization being owned by the brand is a trend that we're starting to see increasing. And it's also a trend which particularly young consumers are enjoying and looking for where they want their own version of these high-end kicks or or whatever it is. So there is still a requirement to have a relationship direct to the brand or direct to the direct to to whoever who can actually offer that level of personalization. I think that's also going to be a real challenge to the supply chain because you can't mix up you know the bottle with your face on it with my bottle of shampoo because I don't want it. (laughs) Am I wrong that there are technologies in place for 3PLs that will customize packaging for boxes. There are systems that will plug in directly from your order management system into your production facility that will automate the stitching of initials into a certain product. There are these pieces of the puzzle that can be put together in order to achieve that, as Guy put it, that trickery, but really just to create scalability within personalization. Absolutely right. And, and both to, both to your points, and, and I was going to get to that, but I think to your to your point, you know, that's sort of what I call vanity personalization, right? Like I need my face on the side of something. And, and you're absolutely right. I think we have the, the systems in place, technology in place. As you mentioned, 3PLs can do this, you know, sort of last mile sort of personalization. You can go up to the manufacturing channel, right, where you're doing postponement uh, up to the last moment before you do the personalization. I think we, we've seen all those techniques in place and will continue to do so. It's a really interesting example about sort of that vanity aspect too, Bill. And it's one of those. And I think this is a great example of personalization up the value chain into manufacturing is I'm a loyal Adidas uh, soccer 
fan in the sense of I, I only wear Adidas soccer boots. And although I play old man soccer, I still think I'm, you know, 18 and qualifying for the World Cup. But anyways, <laughs> I used to order through a customized system, my Adidas, and you could order your customized boots. You had a certain range of personalization, different color, different stitching, different undersole within limitations, right? Adidas didn't, you know, if I wanted some random color that they didn't have, I couldn't get it. But at least I had some sense of personalization. I even could personalize, hey, my, my left boot should be a 10 and my right boot should be a 10 and a half. And then I could stitch in. Of course, I had, you know, the little French flag stitched in and my initials and all that. But what's interesting is that they're still keeping you sort of in a walled garden in terms of that personalization. You know, that's sort of that vanity personalization we get. You're also seeing like New Balance here in Boston in their store on Newberry Street. You can go in and have your foot, I think, laser measured and they'll craft a customized 3D printed insole for your shoe, right? To perfectly meet your arch and all this. So we're starting to see more of that. What's interesting is to Adam's point about sort of the systems are there from a digital standpoint to send out the personalization. Now it comes down to things like 3D printing, right? That's how New Balance and others are doing it, where they can do the 3D printing of the sole right in their store. It comes down to more postponement strategy. I mean, Benetton is legendary about you know postponement strategy back in the 80s, where they would just make a thousand white t-shirts and not color until the very last second to know exactly what the color trend was going to be. So we're going to see more and more of that capacity based on the data that's in our systems, you know, systems like our OMSs, things of that nature that are able to then assign that customization at the last moment. And now back to the pressures on the retails and the manufacturers and the direct-to-consumer brands is how do they weave that into their processes in terms of manufacturing, in terms of kitting, all those things. And at what point can they wait the very last moment or what point can they wait before they have to sort of put something, stamp something on, etch something in, things of that nature. We're seeing more of that partly because of the combination of more advanced manufacturing. Adam, I think you talk about the 3PLs. Absolutely, 3PLs being able to take on more of that and the ability to sort of take the, the digital assets that surround us from a customization standpoint and push them out when it's appropriate. But all of these factors are leading us deeper into the convergence uh, world, right? I mean, it's, it's forcing us down that path where, you know, personalization and all this other stuff can't be done without the brand being involved, without the manufacturer being involved. So everyone's acting like everyone. It comes back to convergence. Absolutely. And it comes back to the reality of we as consumers, in a way now, we, I don't want to say we don't care, but we don't differentiate. Oh, I'm talking to a retailer. Oh, I'm talking to a brand. Oh, I'm talking to a manufacturer. What we see is, hey, I'm talking to uh, an entity and I expect these kinds of services from them. And I personally, as a consumer, if I expect this, I expect to see it. And I don't want to hear the excuse, well, no, I'm just the, I'm just the brand and I sell through wholesale. So it's not my responsibility. Uh-uh. It's your name on the packaging. I hold you accountable. So, Guy, what's your advice to the typical mid-market retailer? How to contend with this? How to evolve with this? You know, I think a couple of things. I think first and foremost, really embrace this, I think, as an opportunity. Why? Because now all of a sudden, if you're a mid-market retailer, or you're a small retailer, you now have the opportunity to build that relationship with your end customer. And however she wants to interact with you, you have that opportunity through digital and through your systems to meet her needs. So I think that's first and foremost is to look at it from, a, I think, a very positive aspect, which is you really now can take more control over that relationship. 
I think second of all, and I think this is the challenging part. We talked about this earlier, right? Sort of the backend systems. You really have to do a hard assessment of, is my supply chain, are my partners, is my backend system ready for this responsibility? What does that mean, right? Do I have the, again, if I'm doing my own manufacturing, do I have the, the insights into my manufacturing processes? Can I flex up, flex down? Do I have insights into my logistics? How am I going to fulfill orders? How am I going to get products out to my customer? I need to look at my systems, right? Are my systems in place to help me orchestrate all this? And it doesn't mean that, you know, you, you have to go out and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to put these really expensive systems in, but it's, you have to do an audit of what you have and understand sort of what is the flexibility? What is the range tolerance that your systems have to meet what is going to become more and more demands on your supply chain? And I think finally, I think the big one for brands and retailers, mid-market or, or large or small, is be honest, be transparent, communicate with your customer, right? For example, if I'm a mid-sized you know, brand and I'm trying to sell you know, the, the latest generation of really cool hot sauces, well, you know, maybe I can't fulfill orders in two days. That's okay. Be open about that. Talk, talk to your customer. Let your customer know, hey, we're going to fulfill your order in seven days. The reality is, yes, we read all these studies that, oh my goodness, everyone wants two-hour delivery, two-day delivery. The reality is you, if you dive into some of the numbers more, people are not necessarily looking for the speed. They just want to know, hey, if you tell me the order comes in seven days, it shows up in seven days. But if it shows up in 10 days, that's a no-no. But if you tell me it's going to show up in 10 days and it shows up in 10 days, that's fine too. Just be honest. Tell me what is available to promise. Tell me what I can expect. It's about that two-way communication with your customer and being open and honest with her about what to expect and then meeting those expectations. And I think that is key to this. I think our good friends over in Seattle have sort of turned the world on its head by saying everything's got to be in two hours or two days. The reality is it doesn't have to be, right? It has to be when I need it and it has to be open communication. For these mid-sized retailers, really, again, it's embrace it. Great opportunity to really differentiate yourself. I think it's do an audit of your systems and your back end, right? What are you able to do? And third of all is over-communicate with your end customer, right? Make sure she knows what to expect and meet those expectations, right? That is the key component of all this. Thanks, Keith. That was great. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks for joining us. We hope that our guests have sparked some new ideas for you and inspire you to push the boundaries for your supply chain operation. New podcasts will be published on the first of every month. And in the meantime, please reach out. We want to know your thoughts about our guests, the topics we covered, and any ideas you might have for future episodes. You can email us at texaspodcast at texas.com. Let us know if you'd be willing to join us and perhaps share your perspective as supply chain experts. And please share us with a colleague and leave us a review. We appreciate your feedback as we continue to evolve the show and line up new compelling interviews. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Until then, this has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm Adam Polka with Texas. And I'm Bill Denby. And thank you for tuning in. 